Okay, if you could start making your way back to your seats. Not everybody wants so. All right, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn it to... The Gospel of Luke, and we are continuing in chapter 17. You may say, Ash, man, we've been in 17 for a long time, and you're right. We have been in 17 for a long time, and we've, we've got a little bit to go. However, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're probably going to take like the whole second half of it all at once, whereas the first half of it, we've broken up into like 10 sermons. So, um, so it'll speed up here um, pretty soon. So Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. It says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers, lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. Um, We ask that um, as we open your word, um, God, that you would speak to us through it. Um, That you would use your word to convict us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, that as we um, read about who you are, as we read about what you have done, um, as you teach us who we are, as you show us um, the, the true nature of our lives and hearts, um, God, that in all these things, um, you would use them to mold us into the likeness of, of your son. God, we, um, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word. Uh, Father, we trust that that is the the primary way in which you work um, amongst your people. Um, God, we we don't negate the fact that you can speak to us in in more um, um, extemporaneous kind of ways, um, God. But we know that uh, the primary way that you talk to us is is the Spirit speaking to us through the Word. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to recognize the import of this of the, the moment, um, and that you would. God, focus our attention, that you would calm um, distractions, uh, and that we would listen um, as you speak to us. Father, we thank you. Uh, we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we come to a story 
in in Luke's gospel um, that deals with the issue of leprosy. If you've been with us through the whole book of, of Luke, um, you'll you'll remember that we've been here before. We've talked about leprosy a little bit before, and so if if it's it's been a while though because it was back in chapter five, I believe that we last touched on um, uh, Jesus healing somebody with leprosy. It was an it was one man on that in that story, um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of jump back in. If if you're a student of the Bible, if you if you've studied the Bible a lot, you may already know a lot of sort of general information about the nature of leprosy in the ancient world, but we're going to zoom in on a little bit because I think it has some particular, um, at the very least symbolic application for us, um, right now. Okay. So starting there in verse 11, it talks about this fact that Jesus was on his way and he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. That's probably part of the reason why it references that is because of the reality of why this Samaritan, um, that we find out one of these 10 men would be amidst what seems to be a leper community, um, mixed in with Jews, okay? And so the reason probably is because they all live in this sort of region um, that is there between Samaritan air region and, and Galilee, which is a, a more typically Jewish region. And so as Jesus is among these people, he comes across this group of 10 lepers. Um, and it says that they stand, in verse 12, it says they stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when we, when we read the Bible, especially in the New Testament about this, this idea of, of leprosy, leprosy is sort of a very generic word in the New Testament. It can mean a lot of different things. So it can mean, um, various kinds of skin diseases in general. Um, uh, there's commentators who will basically say that things like psoriasis, um, uh, scabies, body lice, that all those things would fall under the category of leprosy, even though they wouldn't be leprosy proper. Um, but it is probably the case, especially in the context of these people living together that seem to be, you know, uh, associating with each other in almost like a colony and a group of people. It seems to be the case. This is probably more leprosy, um, proper. And we've talked about before. And again, you probably know if you've read, um, any kind of history or Bible commentary on these leprosy was an especially terrible disease in, in the ancient world. Um, Kent Hughes, who's a Bible scholar, he's got a, a number of commentaries um, uh, about the Bible and about the ancient world in general, um, talks about the fact that there were three kind of prominent kinds of leprosy. There was what's called nodular leprosy, which was when your skin would grow little tumors, um, and these tumors would grow and burst, and then they would get infected, and then through the infection process, um, gangrene would set in, and that was sort of the way that the leprosy um, defiled you. Uh, another kind of uh, leprosy was anesthetic leprosy, and you can guess what it's like because of the name. Uh, basically, what happens is you begin to lose feeling in your extremities, and so then you don't notice when there's an infection. You don't notice when you've burned yourself. You don't notice when you've gotten cut. The pain responses are not there like they should be, and so maybe you drop a rock on your finger, and whereas you would normally pull it back, you don't, and so the finger gets crushed, and now it's damaged, and and disease and, and, and gangrene set in. Um, not to mention that both in both cases of leprosy, there's a process by which they sort of 
even outside of that process of the, of the, of the gangrene and, and wounds and stuff like that, there's a general sort of degenerative nature to leprosy. And so what would happen is, is the body actually just sort of starts to reabsorb its extremities in certain ways, right? You would start to lose your fingertips. You would start to lose the tip of your nose or your ears or the, the tip of your chin. Your body just sort of starts absorbing those things back into your body. And then maybe worst of all is that there was a, a kind of leprosy that was a combination of the two. It was nodular leprosy and anesthetic leprosy. Um, all that to say, leprosy was a long, slow, painful, deforming, debilitating death sentence in the ancient world, okay? Um, and then the physical nature of leprosy was only half of the problem because... As we said, those lepers stood at a distance for a reason because one, people, people feel, people feared being infected. That's people feared being infected. People feared being infected. So you couldn't get close to people who were lepers, right? Um, people didn't want you around. Um, and moreover, not only fear of being infected, but being around someone who had had leprosy, um, made you ceremonially unclean. Even if you didn't end up getting the disease, at least temporarily, you were ceremonially unclean until you could be, um, it could be affirmed by a priest that you were, that you didn't have the disease. Okay. And so the reality is, is these men stand at a distance from Jesus because if they had gotten close, people would have hurled insults at them at the very least, probably hurled rocks at them, um, until they, they went away somewhere. And, and, and that, that separation, right, that isolation of the disease is, is probably at least as bad as the physical side of the disease, right? It functions to remove you from the normal care and concern of the world. So you're excluded all of a sudden from home life and family life. You're rejected by your community socially and vocationally. Um, you're declared unclean by the priesthood, which means you're not allowed to participate in, in temple worship. You're not a, allowed to participate in the festivals. You're not allowed to participate in sacrifices, right? Uh, being a leper, uh, had far reaching consequences for, for your normal life. And so and the reason why I think that's all interesting and why I wanted to re-touch on it is because there are, there's a sense in which, and maybe you recognize it, is leprosy is kind of a parable for our time living in the midst of a pandemic kind of age. There's, there's a pastor named Alistair Begg, and he, uh, in, in part of my, my research process or whatever, sometimes I'll go and look at other pastors who have preached on, on the passage and kind of listen to some of their insights and things like that. And, and Alistair Begg preached on this message, this mess, on this passage, uh, like a year ago, and his and his the title of his sermon was called Ten Men in Quarantine," um, right? Because he's he's playing off this idea of what's going on in our our culture right now. But the reality of living in the midst of a communicable disease is very, you know, real for us, right? Um, the 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 fear that's involved in these things, the isolation that comes from these things. Um, the shame that is connected in different ways to, to the pandemic, right? Trying to live in a way that is safe, trying to live in a way that mitigates risk, um, considering the effects we have on other people's health, um, knowing that those things, even when we do them to the best of our abilities, have hidden costs, 
right? Disconnecting us from faith and community and, and mental health issues and all that stuff that comes in to bear on it, right? And so there's reality while uh, leprosy is relatively uncommon in, in our daily lives, right? Um, you probably don't know anybody who's got leprosy. Maybe you do, but probably you don't. Um, and yet there's a, there's, there's sort of a symbolic picture there, right? It's something that's very, um, contemporary for us living in the midst of a situation like this. Okay. Um, so these men, they recognize the peril that they're in. They recognize that they are in a situation that they can do very little about. And so they come to Jesus for mercy and they come to Jesus for a miracle. They're asking Jesus to do something miraculous to help them. Okay. Um, and here's the deal, man, this story, like many of the stories that we've seen in chapter 16 and 17 is a little bit weird. If you're paying attention, the story is, is maybe it doesn't, it doesn't happen exactly as we would expect. If you're really paying attention to the details, let me show you what I mean. So verse 14, it says, when he saw them, when Jesus saw these men, heard them, you know, up on the hillside or wherever they're yelling at him from, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. All right. Now, the order of the events right here is significant. OK, because notice how it tells us that he says to them, go show yourselves to the priests first. And it's only after that that they are cleansed and healed. OK, um, he doesn't heal them and then says now in accordance with Jewish law, go show yourself to the priest. He says, hey, guys, you're lepers. Go on and show yourselves to the priests. And then the Bible tells us that along the way, as they went, they were cleansed. All right. So what's what's going on here? Right. So the first thing is this is the priests had an interesting added little side hustle. Uh, a biblical side hustle, okay? It wasn't just something they were doing on their own, but a, a job that would is a little bit weird and you wouldn't think that it was part of their daily um, duties, but it was. And that was the fact that basically the priesthood were something like health inspectors in, in the Jewish community, particularly when it came to skin diseases. So it was their job. And we see this in the book of Leviticus. You go to chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Leviticus. Um, it was their job specifically to diagnose skin diseases, cleanse and quarantine procedures were under their sort of purview. Um, it was their job to declare somebody to be cleansed from their disease and, and essentially give them a clean bill, bill of health so that they could return to the community and live as, as a normal person. Okay. And so the reality is, is that, and again, very contemporary for us, even if someone was feeling like they were back to normal, we're not noticing any of the symptoms of, of a skin disease, that the traces of it seem to be all gone. You still had to get a priest to sign off on. Okay. You still had to get a, a negative test within the last 24 hours, right? To have a doctor sign off on those things, right? Okay. Um, the, the same kind of picture. And so Jesus is saying to these men, he's saying, go ahead and go show yourselves to the priests. In essence, he's saying, again, I'm not trying to contemporize it too much, but he's saying, go get tested, okay? Um, go to the priests and have them rule, you know, give their, their, their official ruling on your state of health currently, okay? Now, here's the thing. 
that's not because I would assume there is any question about that these guys, whether or not they have leprosy or not, right? I don't think these are normal, healthy people walking around who might suspect they have leprosy or something like that. These people know they have leprosy. And, and which makes this an interesting little moment for these men, okay? They're walking around, presumably looking like we just described. Tumors, ruptured, pus, infection, gangrenous, bits and pieces of them falling off, right? Um, they know they have leprosy. And yet Jesus says to them, I want you to go to the priests and I want you to get a ruling or whatever, okay? So this is a moment of sort of faith that has to be made on the part of these men. It recalls to me anyway, another famous story from the Old Testament about a step of faith in leprosy. And that's the story of Naaman, who was the commander of the army of Syria um, that we find in the, in the Old Testament. And a situation happens in which um, he has leprosy, um, but he's a man of obviously, obviously wealth and influence. And he happens to have a servant girl who was captured in, in combat somewhere who is a little Jewish girl. And when he develops leprosy, he says, oh man, I, you know, I don't have any way to be cured of this leprosy. And the little girl says, boy, I wish you were back in Israel because back in Israel, we had a prophet named Elisha and Elisha was a, was powerful, um, in, in uh, God had blessed him a number of ways and he could probably heal you if you went and talked to him. So Elisha, uh, or that is Naaman decides that he's going to go meet this Elisha guy. See if Elisha will will heal him from his leprosy, even though he is not of the Jewish people. He's a Syrian, but he says, I'm going to go see what happens. And so several kind of events lead up to it. Finally, uh, Naaman uh, gets down there and Elisha won't even see him. He sends a he sends a servant to him and says, go tell Naaman to wash seven times in the Jordan River. And when he does, he'll be cured of his leprosy. Right. And, And Naaman is indignant. Right. He's like, man, this guy didn't even take the time to come see me. He tells me to go wash in this. I don't know if you've ever seen the Jordan River. We, when we went to Israel, obviously we were there. I mean, it's a, it's a creek. I mean, it's not a river. Uh, maybe in, in, in certain times of the year, it's a river, but it is a muddy creek. Um, most of the time, the creek behind my house is bigger than the Jordan River. Okay. And Naaman says, I, I should go and wash in this river. We got rivers way better in Syria than this, this dirty mud hole river. I'm, this is a waste of my time. We shouldn't have come here. And, and he decides that he's not going to do it. But then the little servant girl says, yeah, but if, if, if Elisha had told you to do some big grand ceremonial something, you'd have done it right to get rid of your disease. Why don't you just go take the little step of faith that he's asked of you and see what happens. And that's exactly what he does. He says, I guess you're right. So he goes to the Jordan river. He washes seven times and he is cured of his leprosy, right? And there's something similar to me in this story is that Jesus is essentially saying to these man, men, I want you to take this normal step of faith. I want you to go to the priests and ask them to give a ruling. You think you already know the answer, right? The answer is obvious. It's, it's oozing out of your, your body, right? The answer is obvious whether or not you have leprosy, but I want you to go and go to the priest. And then what happens, these men, they believe him, okay? They take a step of faith. Um, in the moment, I, again, they have to look down at their missing fingers and their sore-ridden bodies and say, Jesus, we didn't, we came to you for special help because you're supposed to be this miracle-working, you know, prophet. You're telling us to do the thing that we were supposed to have done anyway, right? We could have just looked at the law 
and it would have told us to go to the priest and, and have them check us out. Um, but man, we're going to do what you say. We're going to take this step of faith. We're going to be obedient to you, Jesus, and we're going to do what you told us to do. And guess what? As they're walking, as they are heading, uh, so, so remember we're in this, uh, uh, Samarian, Samaritan Galilean region. This is well north of Jerusalem. So it's going to be several days journey to get there. But as they leave, as they are probably without a earshot of Jesus, all of a sudden, and you can imagine the scene, like they look down, and all of a sudden, everything's gone. Uh, I've, I've mentioned before uh, my love for the movie Ben-Hur. Okay? Love the movie Ben-Hur. It's my favorite movies of all time. And there's a great, beautiful, moving scene at the end of the movie where, and it deals with leprosy again, Ben-Hur's mother and sister in his absence through all of his adventures and things have contracted leprosy. They live in a leper colony. Well, Ben-Hur in the story has encountered Jesus at a number of times in sort of these random providential situations. And when he, at the end of the story, when he realizes that Jesus is in Jerusalem, he thinks to himself, if I could get my mother and sister to Jesus, he could heal them. So he goes to the leper colony against all the, you know, taboos and everything. He descends into the leper colony. He picks up his sister who is almost crippled with leprosy. He gets his mother and they head to Jerusalem. But unknowing to him, the day that Jesus is in Jerusalem is the day of his crucifixion. And so by the time they get to uh, Jerusalem and come into the city, they learn that Jesus has been arrested, condemned, and crucified, and that they're, he's already dead. And, and there's this scene where they've, they, they learn about it and they're talking about it and they're, they're sorrowful because they recognize that obviously they're sorrowful that they missed having Jesus be able to heal them. But more so, they're sorrowful by the fact that Jesus has been killed unjustly and that he was a righteous man and that he's been put to death. And, and symbolically, the, the storm opens up and the lightning crashes and the rain starts to fall and they're huddled in this little, um, kind of, thing where to keep them from from the rain and and they're just crying and weeping and and all hope is lost and and his sister has got her face buried into Ben-Hur's chest and then she looks up and the leprosy's all gone and then they pull back the bandages off the hands and the leprosy's gone and so basically the that what happens at the end is even though Jesus is not with them his mercy is still there um Jesus knows and and the, the two women are healed. It's a, it's a beautiful scene and a cool ending to the movie. Um, not what you would expect. We've talked about before how it's a story about Jesus. It's not a story about Ben-Hur. The story is about Jesus and, and the awesome things that he does. But I imagine a similar scene here. The reason why I bring that whole story up is these 10 men are walking. They're heading toward Jerusalem. They're questioning. They're going, now, what are we going to do when we get there? How are we going to get to the priests? Like, we're lepers. Like, what are we, how are we going to get a priest to come out and talk to us about all these things and discussing and planning and thinking? And then all of a sudden they look down and it's all gone, right? All the sores are healed. Maybe fingers have grown back. Maybe bits of them have, have, are, are supple and healthy and whole again and all these things, right? And then the Bible says this. It says, then one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. So one of the things that makes this passage um, a head-scratcher, if we're paying attention, is the fact that the men who obey Jesus are not the ones who are commended in the end. Have you ever thought about that? The ones who actually do what Jesus told them to do 
are not the men who are commended at the end. What did Jesus tell him to do? He said, I want you guys to go and show yourselves to the priest. And presumably, that's what the other nine did. They followed Jesus' command, and they went to the priests. But it's the one who disobeyed, the one who didn't do what Jesus told him to, who came back, who is recognized and commended. So Jesus sees this man when he comes back in verse 17. And he says, then Jesus answered them, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine at? Right? Again, that seems weird if you think about it. I'll tell you where they're at. They're where you told them to be, Jesus. They went to the priests. You're the one that told them to do that. Why would you question where the nine are at? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Nine men obey the law. They do what Jesus told them to do. And yet they are implicitly chastised in the passage, essentially. Not explicitly, but implicitly. One man disobeys Jesus and the law, at least in the short term. We, we presume that maybe he eventually goes to the priests and gets the official you know, ruling and all those things. But in the short run, anyway, he disobeys Jesus, he disobeys the law, and yet Jesus praises him. So again, what's going on here? Well, I think it's connected to the passage that we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about this idea of duty. We talked about how we do everything as a function of God's command to us, right? We are, at the end of the day, servants. And servants are expected to do what their master tells them. We're only doing what is asked of us. If we ever at any point in our life go, man, I've sure been good about following Jesus today. I'm, I'm probably going to get bonus points, you know, today for how good I followed Jesus. The reality is, is that you've just done what you were told to do. You have just done what was expected of you because he is the master and you were the servant. Okay. That's all true. Not taking any of that back. Right. But. If even though the Christian life begins, if it, let's say if it begins in faith, okay, and then one of the foundational aspects is what we talked about last week, this obedience that is characterized by duty. We see in this passage that there is an even higher calling, though, for us, that that obedience is not the end of the story. It's not the bottom line of the story. It's just the beginning of the story. That there is a higher calling, and that is the calling of joyous praise, right? That is the calling of humble thanksgiving, okay? It would be easy for us as servants to look and be stoic, right? To just sort of say, I'm just doing my job. This is what I do. I do it day in and day out. I don't ask questions. I just do what God tells me to do, right? But Jesus says, man, that's not what I'm asking of you. I'm telling you that duty is a piece of this, and you need to recognize that as servants. But that's not the that's not the end of this thing. The end of this thing, or at least the next step in it, or however you want to talk about it, is the way this man responds, right? He could have done his duty, and he could have obeyed Jesus, and he could have walked to Jerusalem, and he could have gotten his official uh, bill of health, clean bill of health, and obeyed the law, and done all the right ceremonies and sacrifices as the cleansing process. If you want to go look at those, you can read them in, in Leviticus 13 and 14. He could have done all of the things that he was supposed to by the book. 
right? But he was moved in this moment. He was compelled in this moment to not just have a box checking obedience, right? Not just have a thing where he says, I've done all the things that Jesus has told me to do. But instead, he wells up in praise towards God. With this loud voice, he is singing praises to God as he comes back to where Jesus was at. He's compelled to return specifically to Jesus, specifically to him personally, and give him thanks, which here's something interesting. And I read this, and I didn't go back and confirm it because I didn't. it would take me too long to confirm, and I don't know how to confirm it other than reading the entire New Testament and paying attention to it. But according to one commentator I read, this is the only time when Jesus heals somebody and they come and thank him. Every other time it will talk about the people will say, uh, you know, and they were healed and they gave thanks to God. All right, which there's nothing, that's right. They should do that, okay? But something unique happens here and that it says not only was he singing praises to God, but he came back and he thanks Jesus for what has happened, okay? And so I think there's something particular in that random little fact um, that we come across. Again, that, I read that in, in the, the Dr. Robert Stein's book. He was one of my professors at Southern. I trust the guy. If he says it's true, I'm going to trust him. I could be proved wrong. He's not Jesus, but I'm just going to trust that he's right. Okay. Um, but this Samaritan is, is compelled to thank not only the father, but the son for this miracle that has been wrought in his life. And Jesus takes special note of him. And he says, what you have done is, is, is good in, in, in some way. Um, and that takes special note of the fact that he's a Samaritan too, which makes it all the more strange. The Samaritans, again, we talk about it all the time, were, were looked down upon because they were, um, and again, not a, not a PC word, but they were half-breeds, right? They had intermarried with non-Jewish people, mixing their cultures mixing their religion. It was a diluted Judaism mingled with pagan religion that the Samaritans practiced. The Jews didn't like them. Um, they didn't want to be around them. They were unclean. If you, if you were in their presence, they were unclean. And, and you think, why were these nine Jewish people living with this Samaritan guy? And the answer is because they were as unclean as they could get with the leprosy, right? It didn't really matter about the Samaritan issue anymore because they were about as unclean as you could get. Um, but those other nine guys who we presume were Jews, they do exactly what was expected of them. They know the law, they know the system, they know the ceremony, they know what they're supposed to do, and they go do it. And guess what? That's right. You should do those things. When, the, when God has commanded you to these things, you don't bypass that and say, oh, this is no big deal, right? There's nothing that They did what they were supposed to do. But what's interesting is this Samaritan is dumb enough not to know how he's supposed to act. Okay, and that becomes an opportunity for him to exude with praise and humble thanksgiving before Jesus, to come to Jesus personally and bow at his feet and thank him for for the miracle in his life. Here's here's a cool thing. And you've probably all you probably experienced this or I hope you have. If you've been in a church that had new believers in it, you ever been around a new believer who would do something weird or out of character in the context of church or church people and they would do something because they didn't know the rules yet right they didn't know the way they were supposed to act 
And so they do something, but in that moment, there's a beauty to them doing it. So I remember being in a church service one time and the pastor from the pulpit was in the middle of preaching. And you guys all know this. You're not supposed to talk while I'm up here talking, right? Like I'm up here doing my thing and you guys are supposed to listen, right? And at some point, the pastor made a, asked a rhetorical question, right? It was not a question that was meant to be answered. And yet this kid who was, you know, 18, 19 years old, who was a new believer, he didn't know the etiquette yet, right? And he said, well, actually, and he just like started talking, having a conversation with the pastor right there. And the pastor was kind of like, thanks. And then he just went on with his sermon or whatever, right? But there was this neat moment where the kid, and I, and it was, I can't remember the exact question, but it was something like, you know, it was something like, hey, have you seen God work miracles in your life recently or whatever? And the kid was like, I have. I was at the thing the other day and God did this thing or whatever. And everybody's like, okay, well, shut up, buddy. That wasn't a real question. Like, we didn't really want to know about how God had worked in your life. It was just rhetorical, okay? There's something, I think there's something similar to that that's going on here, right? Is this guy, uh, he can't help but go back and do what he's, what he's done. Um, everybody else knows what they're supposed to do and they go do it. And there's nothing wrong with that on a level. Okay, And yet this one man who doesn't know what he's supposed to do, this Samaritan who doesn't know the rules, he is he is overwhelmed by the thanksgiving and the joy that has come in this miracle. And he has to go back and give praise to God for those things. That says something to us about the level of our faith. Right. So when we come to church, okay, it is easy. It is easy for us to just do a paint-by-numbers Christianity, right? To do the things we're supposed to do and to act the way we're supposed to act and to exhibit the behaviors we're supposed to exhibit, right? Especially in a, 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 a let's be honest, okay? In a, in a, the style of worship particularly that we have in our congregation, okay? Um, uh, we're not a particularly charismatic bunch, okay? That's not the way that we worship. Okay. Um, that's not a bad thing. Okay. I'm not saying we need to get more charismatic guys and need some hand raising and some whatever. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. If you wanted to raise your hands, you could and you probably should. Right. If you were moved by God to express your faith in a way that was respectful, doesn't take away from saying, you know, I'm not saying do goofy stuff. Right. I'm probably going to call you down if you start doing like cartwheels down the front of the, the, the thing. But what I'm saying is, and, 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 and worship is only, man, it's only one little piece of that, right? The idea of the way we express our corporate worship is only one little piece of that. The question is this, is to say, are we, are we going through the motions, right? Are we just doing the things that we're supposed to be doing? And checking off the next thing and, and, and being obedient and saying, nobody can say anything negative about what I've done because I've done all the things that I was supposed to do. Or are we living in a way where we are being led by the spirit even to, um, to recognize the great joy, mercy, blessing that God has, has wrought in our lives? And so this is what I would say in connection with last week's message. We have a faith that is about duty. But that duty is not supposed to be drudgery, okay? It is supposed to be delight. 
when we read that passage last week that I love about, I would rather be a doorman in the house of the Lord. Like that is not saying, oh man, I wish Jesus would give me the dumbest job so I could sit and like be bored all the time. That's not the point. The point is to say, I would rather do anything for Jesus than do the most fun thing in a wicked context. Our duty is not drudgery. It's delight, or it should be. It was for this man. He recognized what God had done for him, and he erupted in praise and thanksgiving. And how could it be anything else, right? How could the blessing of God in our life be anything else when we realize what Jesus has accomplished for us? When we realize the great mercy and grace that has been shown in our lives, man, how can we do anything other than erupt in praise? How can we do anything except humbly lay down before Jesus and give our lives to him? He has cleansed us of all of, of all unrighteousness. He has banished all those things that we worried about. He has banished fear and shame and isolation. Like all those things are gone because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. And that should elicit something in us that is more than duty, not less than, not opposite to, not um, contrary to obedience, but something that is more than obedience. Amen? Does that make sense? That was the hard put it in park, come to a screeching stop, and end, okay? But that's the reality. So what I want to do is I want to go to the Lord in, in, in prayer. Um, and just to consider those things in our lives. It, man, it's hard to, I, I, if you're like me, there, there are often times when I pray and I say, God, I don't know why I don't feel these things more passionately, right? I know what you have called me to. I know um, I can cognitively tell you of the infinite mercy and grace and blessing that, that you have uh, accomplished in my life. And yet in my own sin, in my own apathy, in my own whatever, it can all feel commonplace, right? Maybe it was like that for those nine men who just kind of went, oh yeah, this is what happens when you get healed. You just go back and you talk to the priest a little bit and he does one of these things and then you, and then you walk out and you're good. Maybe that was the deal. Maybe this seemed like a normal everyday, hey, we've had the law for thousands of years, Jesus. This is what it's always said. We're just doing the next thing. Okay. And, and I want, I want there to be more of that. I mean, I'm, I'm more than that in my heart, right? I want there to be more joy, more passion, um, more thanksgiving, and not just painting by the numbers and going by the motions, right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to work in our hearts in these ways. Father God, we thank you for the fact that uh, we can, with the, the the ten lepers, we can we can testify to the to the cleansing, shaping, enabling mercy that we have been shown in our lives. We can attest to being people who who spiritually, metaphorically, sometimes even in our physical and social lives, God, that we were that we were diseased, that we were in shame, 
that we were deformed, that we were decaying, God, that we had lives that were leading towards our own deaths. Um, and yet you stepped in and brought us out of those things. You stepped in and through your life, death, and resurrection, God, you have made us alive and whole and healthy in you. God, how could we not um, sing praises to you? How could we not honor and give thanks to your son, Jesus Christ, for what he has done? Um, how could it not be um, the song of our lives and, and the, the motivating passion of everything that we do? And yet, God, we confess that it is not oftentimes um, that we um, live decent lives doing what you've told us to do. God, just doing the next thing and checking the box. Father, we do not, um, we are not saying anything negative about obedience. Um, God, we know your word over and over and over again calls us to obedience. And yet we want to do that with joy. We want to be people who follow and serve you and are delighted in that process and are overjoyed and humbled by the very fact that we get to be a part of it. God, help us to be those people. We ask that you would stir those affections in our heart. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
Amen. Uh, good to see you tonight. Glad you got to be here. Um, continue to be in prayer for, for Adrian's family, um, his wife and children who, God willing, will in the next day or so be able to cross the border into Poland. And from Poland, um, everything should be fine um, after that, uh, and they should be home quickly. Um, uh, but continue to be in prayer for, for the nation of Ukraine, for, for those who are suffering and who are fighting and who uh, will be affected by the conflict and particularly for Adrian's family. Amen. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.